series called Counterculture, but it's actually a study in the book of 1 Peter. I don't know if you've ever done a study through a whole book of the Bible, but you are, you are, you are now. So we're going to jump right into this this morning and let Peter talk this morning. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom to cover up for evil. But living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Think about this this morning. We are currently living in a climate, in a culture, in our society where we, where Christians are, are having a hard time with a scripture like this. And we're actually, as we're going to look at, we, we're actually using other people's evil for an excuse for us to act like the devil. Well, they're angry and mad, so I'm going to be angry and mad. They're using foul language and expletives to, to degrade another, another person or degrade, degrade me, so I'm going to do the same to them. And you guys been on social media? They're, they're using the actions of evil people, ungodly people, as a, as a reason to do the same. And Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is saying that is not how a child of God is to live. It says, for this is the will of God. If you want to know what the will of God is, here he says it. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I want you to understand, Peter is, is, is writing this to the churches that is under the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. The church is still here today. Rome is no longer a world empire. So if you're thinking, this doesn't work, you're wrong. It says, live as people who are what? Free. You're free. We're free in Christ. See, no matter what station, or no matter how you find yourself in this world, in Christ Jesus, you have been set free. You can be in prison and be recreated by the Spirit of God and be free even behind bars. There is a freedom, there's a liberation in Christ Jesus that's available to us. This is honor, honor, honor who? Who are we supposed to honor? Everyone. Honor everyone. What does that mean? That means treat them as if they have value. Treat them as they have value. Again, everyone. Who's left out? No one. 
No one's left out. Peter, Peter starts here by telling us that our perfect God, he works through imperfect authority. Someone asked when it comes to um, these issues of citizens and government and justice and injustice, you know, why didn't the early church just revolt? Why didn't they just declare war? Why didn't they just overthrow the Roman Empire? Well, because the Christians were a very small minority group of people. In addition, they didn't have the same rights um, that other Roman citizens had in the empire. And, and the Roman Empire was the largest, most powerful, affluent nation in the hi world history at that time. Literally, um, the culture that, that is receiving this letter was living like they would be ruled in, like we, in North Korea. If you're familiar with North Korea, today there is no separation of church and state, which means that you're not free to worship without government interference. It doesn't mean that the church isn't supposed to go have speak into government. It's that the government's not supposed to come into the church. Right? In North Korea, the, the, the state is God. You literally worship the, the ruler, the emperor. That's how it was in, in, in Roman times. It, it, was, it was so much, I was reading some, church, some history on this, and you literally, when you went into major cities to buy, sell, and trade, you know, because that's where the commons was done, they had incense burning and centurions at the entrance of the gate, and you literally had to put your hand into the ashes and put it on your forehead and put your hand, your right hand um, towards the statue or whatever there and say, Caesar is Lord, before you are allowed to go in and buy, sell, and trade. So they had to have a mark on their hand. On their head. So, maybe there's some little bit of revelation and revelation there. But anyways, see that, that was one of the things. The reason why it's so prevalent in the New Testament of saying Jesus is Lord, it was civil disobedience to the lie that Caesar is Lord. So this is the this is the context of what what he's he, that Peter's writing to. Um, you, just like in North Korea, you were brainwashed from a young age to worship the emperor and to worship the state, and ultimately you have no rights. And what happens is if you say no to the that the emperor is Lord, that that and that you say that Jesus is Lord, they kill you. And if, if, and if you're a family man, if you have, you're a father and a husband, they do terrible things to your wife and children. This is the context in which Peter is writing. They would have thought that the, the liberties that we enjoy were unthinkable. Even the liberties that we, and the freedoms that we take for granted were unheard of in their time and in their day. This would be like Christians today living in China that are meeting in the underground, or Christians that are under Sharia law, hardcore Muslim context where it's illegal to worship Jesus and to be part of the church and to have a copy of the Bible. This is the times that Peter is writing to. And in the midst of all this, what does Peter tell them? Honor the emperor. 
See, in their day, it was Claudius. And it was the start, he, he, he was worshipped as a deity. And there was a man that was coming, and his name was Nero. We've talked a lot about Nero. And Nero would oversee some of the great persecution, the greatest persecution in church history. Some, some of you have been thinking lately, um, well, that things are getting bad here in the United States. It's nothing compared to what they experienced under the Roman political atmosphere. Actually, they had it a lot worse. Nonetheless, in the midst of all this, he says, Peter says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to honor the emperor. In addition, additionally, to the governors. In that day, who would the governors been? Pilate. The one that handed Jesus over to be crucified. Another governor would have been Felix, who abused Paul in the Bible. When he talks about honoring, respecting the authority in every institution, he's talking about that children should, just like children should honor their mother and father, that citizens should have a little bit of respect for their political leaders. That in the church, Christians should honor their pastors and, and those who are in oversight in, in government positions. It also means that at work, a Christian employee should honor their boss, their employer. And they should show respect to their employer. And if you are a citizen, you should respect the first responders. You should respect those that are seeking to uphold law, the rule of law. If you are in a nation that is protected by military, you should honor and respect and appreciate those who that, who's, that secure those freedoms. Can you see how this is not an old book? Can you see how this is an internal book? It's timeless, so it's always timely. I have a question for you. First, whose authority are you under? Whose authority are you under? And how are you doing in responding and respecting that authority? Second, who is under your authority? Who is under your authority? Would they say that you are loving, that you are honorable, that you are gracious, that you have the character of Christ, and that you are one that's easily easy to respect? What tends to happen is because most have their minds conformed to the world's way of thinking, when it comes to authority, we want people to respect authority when we are in authority. But we don't want to respect those that we are under their authority. So how do we do this? Here's what God says. Number one, do good to silence ignorant and foolish people. we got a lot of those in this world today. Right? So what he's saying is that ignorant and foolish people tend to be the most loud. And by arguing or fighting with them, it just makes you all the more foolish and ignorant. And it, multitudes, it multiplies the problem. By ha having a good 
good conduct and character, you can silence ignorant and foolish people. By acting in the way of Christ, you silence ignorant and foolish people. But the problem is, is that they draw you in and get you to act in the flesh so you act just as ignorant and foolish as they do. Does that happen in your marriage? One gets in the flesh. They're acting. If you're not acting like Christ, you're acting ignorant and foolish. And then all of a sudden that causes the other person to get in the flesh and act ignorant and foolish. And then everything is happily ever after, right? No. See, this isn't, this isn't just talk about government. This is the governance of the home. And everyday relationships with people. He's talking about when everybody's behaving inappropriately. He says, conduct yourself in such a way to set a godly alternative. See, we're not, we're not, supposed, to, we're not supposed to fight against culture the way that the kingdom of darkness fights against the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ that shows a godly alternative to the chaos and ignorance that they're living in. He goes on to say that you should live free, but don't use your freedom to cover up evil. What sinful people tend to do is when, uh, is when, they, um, when criticisms happen, or circumstances have happen, they use them to cover up their own evil. Well, I did this because they did that. Evil happened, therefore I do evil. And we have to be very careful, especially in the culture, in the political climate that we find ourselves in, that the church, that children of God, don't act like the devil. They did something bad, therefore I get to do something bad. They said something wrong, therefore I get to say something wrong. They lied, so I can stretch the truth. And, what, and that is not justice, that is injustice. And it multiplies evil. And like I said, you can see how that plays out just as simple in your marriage. Well, they did this. They treated me this way, so I get to treat them this way. Well, injustice was done, so that gives me to riot, to loot, and to burn. Do you see this? Do you see how the kingdom of darkness operates and it leads to more and more evil? Injustice followed by injustice, responded with injustice, leads to more injustice. See, fallen people want to serve their own interests. That's why your marriage stinks. That's why culture stinks. Because we're following our own interests. This is also why everything gets politicized. This is why 
every event that happens, it gets pulled to the right or it gets pulled to the left. But for a Christian, we need to pull it up. Okay, God, what do you think? What do you say about this situation? God, what do you want to accomplish in this situation? Lord, what is your agenda? How do I help people meet the Lord Jesus through all of this? Don't lose your mission. Don't lose your message. He says, serve God. In the midst of all of what they were experiencing, he says, serve God. Live as free people. Don't just serve your own interests. Don't just serve your, your kind. Right? We live in a culture right now where everybody likes to divide into their groups. Don't just serve your agenda. Just don't serve your party, but serve God. Peter tells the church to honor everyone. This means treat them as if they have value. What about the people that we know are wrong? What about the people that we don't like? What about the people that are very offensive and very unkind, that are literally agitators, that are trying to spark anger, anger and outrage? That they're... they're they're inciting rage. What about them? Do we honor them too? Well, they fall under everyone, don't they? Honor doesn't mean that you agree with someone. Right? If you're married, you know this. Right? If men agreed with everything I said, we'd both be wrong. So you need to honor your spouse. Right? You have to treat them with dignity. You have to treat them as they have value. You need to honor your spouse. It doesn't mean that you always agree with them though. What it means is if you're going to have a relationship, there needs to be some mutual respect. It doesn't mean that you agree with everyone. It doesn't mean that you support everyone. It doesn't mean you endorse everyone. It doesn't mean you bless everyone. It doesn't mean that you fund everyone. It means that in your disagreement, your, your, your honor, you honor that relationship by treating them, by treating them in an honorable way. Because as a Christian, our goal is not to win arguments. Our goal is to win people. If you don't honor someone, you might win the argument. Again, have you been there in your marriage? But you don't win the person. And our goal is not just to win arguments for Jesus, it's to win people to Jesus. Peter then says to love the brotherhood. This is the Christian's priority. To love the brotherhood. It says a little later in the New Testament that you should do good for all, especially those who are in the household of faith. So as you look at the needs, and you're like, I want to meet human needs, I want to love, I want to serve, I want to be generous, I want to bless, we are to start with those that are part of our household of faith. 
We're supposed to be taking care of one another first. And it's the same thing. He writes, he writes that he, he that does not take care of his own family is worse than an infidel, Paul writes. There, there are people that spend all their time trying to serve humanity, but they neglect their own family. You serve and you, and you provide for your own family, then with the overflow, with what's left over, you serve humanity. And tell you the truth, if more people were serving and taking care of their families, there would be a lot less of humanity that needed to be taken care of. Those that are in your household, in your church family, our first responsibility is to those people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. What this does, this, this realigns our priorities. Our priorities are no longer around our political party. It's no longer around our race. It's no longer around our agenda. It's no longer around our nation or our state or our ideology. It's around, I love Jesus. You love Jesus. We're family. This relationship is how is now my main priority. This relationship between Jesus, me and Jesus, you and Jesus, and us together is now our number one priority. Family needs to be priority. Church family needs to be priority. You are now part of a family. Paul says not to forsake the coming together as what? A family. Our family. See, we can fall into this culture of consumerism where we go to church for what it does for you, what it does for me. What do I get out of it? How do families work if that's how everybody is? Constantly, what can I get out of this relationship? What can I get from this? What it becomes is bankrupt. If people are constantly always taking withdrawals out of an account, sooner or later there's going to be nothing left to take out. No, the, the church and family is about everyone depositing, everyone depositing, everyone depositing. And as everyone deposits, everyone flourishes. He goes on to say, fear God. And what he's talking about here is acknowledging that over all authority, the ultimate authority is God. Over all authority, the ultimate authority is God. So as Christians, we believe that there is a lawgiver and His name is God. And that there are universal laws that are, that, that, that are binding over all peoples, times, and places. People who are crying and calling for justice but don't believe in God are ignorant. They're ignorant. Because you cannot appeal to a law that you say does not exist. There has to be a supreme lawgiver. There has to be a design. There has to be order for there to be something for you to say is unjust when it's, when it's broken. And you can't appeal to a lawgiver if you desire, deny the existence of God. Most atheists have to steal from God to justify any type of moral code. They steal from God. Only those that believe that there is a God who is a lawgiver have the right to appeal to a higher authority. So here's the way it works. 
When there is injustice, rather than denying all authority, we appeal to a higher authority to correct incorrect authority. Do you understand that? We appeal to ultimate authority to correct incorrect authority. So for example, let's say a woman came to church and she said, we've got kids. My husband is a very bad father. He's constantly angry, constantly screaming. He's constantly intimidating us. The kids are scared of him. He's not generous. He's not a very good dad. What, so what would I say to this woman? What, well, since there's injustice, we should eradicate all fatherhood. We should get rid of fatherhood. What we need to do is get rid of all fathers because now we found one who's doing a bad job. But that's what we do in our society. Instead, I would say, he's not the ultimate authority. His authority is, der- is, is uh, der- derivative authority. Right? That's the word. His authority comes from God and is to be exercised in the way that God intends. Therefore, I would instruct that man, that father, on what the Bible says about loving his children. I would appeal to a higher authority. I would say, sir, you are not God. You're just dad. And over dad is God. And God has the right to tell dad how to treat his kids. So I would appeal to a higher authority. That's what it means to fear God. It means when there is wrong, when there is wrong use of authority, it's not denial of authority, but it's an appeal to the highest authority to correct incorrect authority. Do you understand that? Then he goes on in verse 18. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it? You endure. But but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Alright. How many of you are glad that you don't have my job right now? I have two choices here. I could teach it, or I could ignore it. And I will not ignore it. But let me set up the context through which we are reading this 2,000-year-old sacred text through culture of conflicts that were currently happening. Alright? First, the Bible teaches all peoples are created by God. Right? As full image bearers. That's what the Bible says. There is no evolutionary theory. Part human, part animal. None of that. Male, female, equally bearing the image and likeness of God. End of story. 
That's what the Bible teaches. Number two, there is one race. I know that the, the world doesn't tell you this, but there is only one race. The Bible does not teach race in the Bible. We just talked about this last week. He says, you are a chosen race. We are chosen in Christ to be a race in the earth of all people groups, all languages. But the, the Bible doesn't divide by race. Because there's one race made up of all nations and cultures that descended from Adam and Eve. Do you get that? Do you understand that? According to the Bible, if we all did a genealogical, send it into what is it? DNA or family tree or what? They got all those goofy things out there. But if you send it in and, they, and, and you went back farther and farther and farther, eventually we would all find out we had the same mom and dad. We're all part of the same bloodline. Amen. Number three, every person apart from Christ is a sinner. And every system is affected by human sin. So no one is perfect and nothing is perfect in this world apart from the Spirit and the Word of God. What this means is that people and systems we build need to be humble. We need to be humble and we need to repent What's repent mean? It means to turn around. When you're, when you're not acting like Jesus, when you're not acting like what we see in the Word of God, you repent. You turn around and you go the other direction. We, and we need to be constantly learning on how we can improve. You would be shocked at how many things you believe and call it Christianity that was actually put together through Plato and Aristotle Greek philosophy. We're not going to get in that today, though. So what this means is that we're part of a fallen world, and we need to understand that and be humble towards God in the midst of trying to live kingdom on earth. We should be constantly trying to improve by moving closer to God's design that's found in Scripture. Number four, God establishes laws to provide equality for all people. Do you realize that? That laws actually provide equality? And God is the one that gave us laws so that we could have equality among people? The first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of the law. They have 613 laws because our God is a law giver and His laws are for all peoples, times, places, and cultures. Most cultures and countries historically do not have rule of law. Do you understand that? Our entire Western concept of law was borrowed from the Bible. Most cultures was do what the king says, do what the emperor says, or die. There was no equality. Number five, God's kingdom is a pattern for justice and, and social order for those in authority and under authority. 
So if you want a, to know what a utopian society looks like, it looks like the kingdom of God. We're to believe that there, we, we're to believe that there is an unseen, invisible realm, that there is a God who has an eternal plan. Our hope, our prayer, and goal is that our world would increasingly look like His kingdom. That is the blueprint for us building a good and just society is the Word of God and the Kingdom of God. Number six, God's people, the church, are a new family called the chosen race. That's what Peter told us earlier. Right? That in Christ we're family. We have the same Father and we're filled with the same Spirit. Seven, leadership in the church is based upon Character and not social factors. What do I mean by this? In the New Testament, there's a book called Philemon. Right? It's regarding a leader in the early church named Onesimus who was, who was a slave at the time. And Paul says, don't treat him as a slave. Treat him as a brother. If you read Colossians chapter 4, Paul talks about Onesimus and he is work, working with Paul as a leader within the church. Paul literally handed him the book of Colossians and said, I need you to deliver it. So in culture, Onesimus was the lowest. In the church, Onesimus was the highest. In the church, he was a pastor over his master because he had character and God chose him. See, number eight, Christianity is the most diverse, di diversity of any movement, is, most, is most diverse of any movement ever in world history. Missionaries have gone around the world. Bible translations and language, uh, and language creation has gone around the world. Billions of people today worship and follow Jesus. All languages and cultures and tribes and nations. Christianity is the largest, long, longest standing and most diverse movement of any kind in history. It has not always done things perfectly. But compared to any, any other worldview, it, 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 it has done the most good for all society and there is not even a close second. St. Patrick was a slave. How many of you knew that? St. Patrick, St. Patrick's Day, all of that, he was a slave. And then he was the one who fought against slavery by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. European slavery ended only because the church extended its sacraments to all slaves, saying that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. The church did that. And people died to do that. And then, a ban, a ban was imposed on enslave, the enslavement of Christians and Jews. 
because of the church. It was William Wilberforce who opposed slavery in Great Britain. Two-thirds of the leaders of the American abolitionist movement were Christians. Two-thirds. Abraham Lincoln was a Christian. Rosa Parks was a Christian. Jackie Robinson was a Christian. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian. There was a problem. There are still problems. And God's people and God's Word are always the solution. He goes on to say, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit, credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Here is something that you're not going to like. Part of your ministry as a Christian is to suffer. Any pastor that does not prepare his people for suffering is not helpful to his people. Did you just read did we just read that? See, we're not in heaven yet. You guys are gonna have some hard days. You're going to need Jesus on the bad days just as much as you need Him on the good days. It's not that God always gets us around the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes Jesus leads us through it. Right? For this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you example, so that you might follow in His footsteps. How do we respond in our suffering? Like Jesus. Like Jesus. So here's what Peter is saying. There are forces culturally, politically beyond your control. As a result, you're not living in the culture, the nation, that fully represents your values according to the Word of God. By living out your faith, there will be certain things you cannot believe. By living out your faith, there are certain things you can't, you can't believe. You can't put your stamp of approval on it. There are certain Ways that you cannot behave because we have a higher authority. There will be a lot of pressure to put on you publicly, maybe even legally, maybe even physically and personally or economically to get you to conform. You ever hear of personal pronouns? There's a lot of pressure for you to go along with the ignorance of the day. But we have to submit to the highest authority that is God. And as a result, you will suffer unjustly. You will suffer when you go against culture. It will be wrong what's said about you, what's done to you, but Peter says it is, this is a gracious thing, meaning God has hidden in it the means of grace. There's a means of grace. If you go back to um, Paul, where he talks about all the things that he suffered. And how there was this messenger of Satan that was constantly buffeting him over and over again. And he prayed about it. And God says, my grace is sufficient. In suffering, God gives you 
grace to endure. I would submit to you three things. Number one, unjust suffering makes us grateful for Jesus. What he, what he says is Christ suffered and left you an example for you in suffering. How many of you, when you are suffering, you have a deeper appreciation for Jesus? And a deeper understanding of what He suffered. See, God is in heaven. No suffering comes down to, what, to, to, to us from God. And number two, what unjust suffering does, it allows us to be conformed by Jesus. The Bible says that we have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Jesus says, man, I know what it's like. I know where you're at. I've been there, done that. I know what it means when people say things about you that aren't true. I know what it's like to have a public mob just come and ultimately wreck your reputation and wreck your life. I know what it's like when your friend betrays you. I know what it's like when, when legally you are being harassed. I know what it's like when they're trying to control you through um, your thoughts, through fear, judgment, culture just constantly berating you. Jesus knows and understands and has been through it. He has suffered through it just like you have and you will. Number three, Jesus is the only God who can comfort us. I'm so glad in a world of suffering, we do not worship a God who is immune to suffering. That doesn't understand suffering. But He has entered into it for us. And He has experienced it. And He comes to be with us in our suffering. Peter then goes on to talk a little bit later in the book. But he, he says that when we suffer... God gives more grace. What that means is that the glory of God rests on you to the degree that you're suffering. That means the more you, that you suffer, the more God's presence you will have. Because the more of God's grace you will need. And we, in the midst of our suffering, we, we do not need to throw our fist in the air. We do not need to try to retaliate with evil with evil. We are to draw on the grace of God in the character of Jesus Christ in the midst of the suffering. The whole context of 1 Peter chapter 2 is servants. You're serving government. You're serving um, governors. You're serving God. You're serving your masters. And, and, and so this raises the whole, a host of a lot of questions. And I'm sure that there are those that have questions. Some translators will say, servants, when it says servants, obey your masters, sometimes they translate it servants, sometimes they translate it bond servants, sometimes they translate it slaves. And when you hear this language, we immediately and understandably go to American history. Uh, understanding of slavery. Right? What does the Bible mean by servants? We're in the book of the Bible, and we're not going to skip anything. Right? So he keeps on using this word servant. And what we need to understand, 
that in the day of the Roman Empire, in which Peter was writing, listen to this, 50% of the Roman Empire were slaves or servants or bondservants. 50% were in that category. By comparison, at the time of the Civil War, 10% roughly of Americans were slaves. So you're looking at the largest nation, the most powerful and affluent nation on earth, and they grew by overtaking different people groups, and oftentimes through war, so that half of their citizens were in the category of servant, bond servant, or slave. And the Bible uses this word as three different categories, to, to, and we're going to explain each one of them. Number one, the Bible talks about slave trading. Slave trading. When we think, and this is what we think about when we think about slavery in America. Slavery in America, the Bible language for that would be slave trading. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 11. The law is not made for a righteous, but for lawbreakers. Whose law? God's law. Over all people, times, places, nations, and cultures. The law is not made for a righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. The ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. And then he gives a list. For those who kill their mothers and fathers. Today, our problem is that mother and fathers kill their children. For murderers, for sexually immoral. What is that? What's the sexual immoral? That's living together before you're married. That's sex outside of marriage. That's dating. That's um, dating. Um, having sexual intercourse. Fornicating. That's hookup culture. That's tender apps. That's what that is. For those who practice homosexuality. For, and then what does it say? For what? Slave traders. See, right up to this point, we were kind of listing America's, vir America's culture's virtues. Their virtue list. See, every culture has virtues, and they call them vices, and vices that they call virtues. That's why the Bible says, woe to anyone who calls good evil and evil good. But I want you to see that slave traders and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What does that mean, sound doctrine? It means healthy. Sound means healthy. It's healthy doctrine. You can't be healthy if you do these things. This conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. He's talking here about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How many of you don't see equal emotion and outrage at all these activities in our culture? I mean, I have not yet to see we're against fornication parades. Have you? It says here that slave trading is, is slavery that was in, and it was as it was practiced in America. And it was almost entirely racial. We just talked about how the Bible does not divide us by race. Satan does. 
almost all cultures have practiced slavery, and in the Roman Empire, all races were slaves. Here in America, it was almost entirely racial. It was essentially a lifetime status where you were the property of your master. You were not considered a full human being. You didn't have full legal rights. Those who were born to slave parents were also considered property and not fully human beings. And they were passed along as with the estate like livestock. That slave trading, and the Bible calls it a sin. The Bible calls it a sin. It's not just unfair, it's actually ungodly. It's not actually, it's not, it, it's not actually um, wrong for the person only, but it offends, it offends God who made the person and loves the person. So the Bible says that slave trading in these three categories, servant, bondservant, and slave, is sinful and wrong. That's what the Bible says on it. I think it's absolutely reasonable to say that more needs to be done. And I think it could be said that that, that could be said about every human institution that we have. That more can do, be done. Things can get better. The statement that everyone is a racist that we find in our culture today, that no one cared, no one did anything, that sort of emotional statement it really dishonors those who did do something to secure all, everyone's freedom. And today on Memorial Day, I think it's a good day to remember this. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States of America. He ran on an anti-slavery abolitionist platform. He was a born-again Christian who was very clear about his faith. And later on, he was murdered by an opponent. So we had a president that gave his life for this issue. In 1861, 11 states determined that they would succeed from the Union and become the Confederate States of, the, of America. This brought us into the beginning of the Civil War. The Civil War lasted four years. And at that time, the population of the United States of America was 32 million. During those four years, 620,000 men died. I'm talking hand-to-hand, bloody combat. It's not like sending a drone and dropping a bomb. This is one man killing another man face-to-face. In addition to the 620,000 men who died, many were injured. They didn't have the medical ability that we have today, so what they did was just basically amputate. So now we've got a whole generation of men that are gone or they're crippled. Compare that today to the population of America, which is about 10 times higher If we had a civil war today, the body count would be 6.2 million people. Just so you know, COVID-19, the statistics are those that die with COVID. 
So it's important to know it's, that you died with COVID, not of COVID. Right? This is the statistics. And what it tells us is that the number is 130,000 people died with COVID. Why do I bring that up? If you take the same population percentages, that would be 130,000 people would have died every month during the Civil War for four years. Emotionally feel that. Therefore, for someone to say, no one cared, no one did anything, I would say, do not dishonor those who did give everything. Because no greater love does anyone have than this, that he lays down their life for another. Yes, more can be done, but we need to acknowledge that many did something. And we need to be honest with the facts. And we need to be honest with the truth. Amen? The second category, you're going to give me a little bit of time. I'd like to get through. We're going to get through the end of this. So if you need to take a nap, go ahead. This is all about me. No. But hopefully you're learning something. This is a big chunk of Scripture here that, that, we, that people have read and they're, they're not dissecting. They're not getting into it. They're not applying it to... How does this apply to me? And you see that the Bible applies perfectly to the days that we're living in. So the second category of servant is prisoners of war. Remember Babylon men? We were studying that. They came in. They, uh, Babylon took over um, Israel and took Daniel, Meshach, and Shadrach and Abednego back with them. Right? They were prisoners of war. So godly people have been prisoners of war. Historically, the majority of people who have been in this category of slave, they were prisoners of war. Our nation wars against your nation. We're the winner, and the winner takes all. We get your houses, your livestock, your gold. You work for us. That's the way of war. And that's the way it was done historically. War is bad, in case you didn't know. The third category is bondservant. A bondservant was a category that was much broader. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 7. 20 through 23. Each one should remain in a condition that they were, he was in when they were called. So if you're married and you become a Christian, love your spouse. If you become a Christian and you got kids, raise those kids. Were you a bond servant? And that language of bond indicates some sort of financial connection. Were you a bond servant when you called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can get, gain your freedom... Avail yourself of the opportunity. See, what does he, what, so what does it say? It says, if you're a bondservant, when you get saved, don't worry about it. But if you can get free, get free. See, if you don't understand what a bondservant is, and you think it's, it's talking about that slave trading that we originally talked about, you're going to think that it's promoting slavery. The Bible did not invent slavery but it recognizes this fallen world where people enslave other people. That's what the Bible does. 
He says, get free. Don't stay in that situation. Get as much freedom as you can get. For he says, for, for who has called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man in the Lord. And he's talking here about spiritual freedom. There are people who have physical freedom, but they do not have spiritual freedom. Listen up. There are people... You sit here today as free people in the United States of America. You have physical freedom. But you do not have spiritual freedom. If you're addicted, if you're enslaved to sex, pornography, alcohol, pride, anger, narcissism. Jesus says get free. Who the Son has set free is free indeed. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ, you were brought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So that means do not sell yourself over to a bondservant after you've been freed. This category of bondservant, it was not mainly racial. It was more, it was, and it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a lifetime. Most people were freed by 30, and oftentimes it was a business agreement. And you, that you entered in because you felt it was beneficial to you. You know, when people came to the United States for the first time, they would sell themselves into servitude to pay for their trip over, and then they would work for the one that paid for their trip over for a period of time, and then they would be free. That's what a bond servant is. Here's some examples. Um, the economy collapses. You don't have means to provide for your family, so you sign an agreement where you, you will live on their land, you'll eat their food, but you'll work for their company and his family. Right? As a result, they're going to take care of your family. Sometimes it would be in exchange for a business opportunity. I worked for X number of years, almost like an intern for, for a trade. I will volunteer my services and then I will leave. And I will launch my own business or maybe I'll start a new branch of your business. Right? At times, um, this was an exchange for educational opportunity. How many of you have ever used a GI Bill? I don't know if anybody's used that here, but that's what this is. You went through the military, and then, and then they pay for your college. Right? In the ancient world, world that would be called a bondservant agreement. Teachers, sometimes they have an agreement to teach. You teach for X numbers of years and then they'll pay off your student loans. That's a bond-servant agreement. Right? What critics of the Bible will do, they'll say, it's a racist book. It's a bigoted book. It's a privileged book. It's an abusive book. But they don't understand the book. 50% of the Roman Empire were in this overreaching category that has all three subcategories. And the Bible is saying slave trading is evil. So you're probably wondering what about civil disobedience? What about civil disobedience? What about unjust authority? What about ungodly authority? If all we do is read Peter, it seems to indicate that we're... We're under, uh, we're under abusive authority that you should do nothing about it and say nothing 
regarding it. This is the category that Peter is talking about called civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. And here's how I would summarize it. We are to, we are to submit to authority unless, number one, it forbids us from doing what God commands. And number two, it commands us to do what God forbids. There are many examples of, in the Bible of civil disobedience. Right? Daniel, Meshach and Abednego, the fiery furnace, Daniel thrown in the, into the lion's den. Jesus Christ gave His life. It was mainly civil disobedience against the ruling class of Israel and Rome. You had um, John the Baptist that was thrown in prison and lost his head for civil disobedience. The majority of the books of the Bible and the New Testament was written from where? Prison. How do you get in prison? Civil disobedience. Right? God's culture is one of harmony and Satan's kingdom is one of anarchy. The kingdom of God is one of order and Satan is one of disorder. The solution to bad governance is not no governance, but appealing to God's governance to fix bad governance. You understand that? Civil disobedience is opposite to anarchy. Anarchy is trying to destroy, eradicate the rule of law as we're seeing people's ideology creep into American culture. Civil disobedience is appealing to God's law. Civil disobedience, rightly done, actually honors and appeals to law. Where else? Anarchy opposes and destroys law. We're going to I'm going to quit there. We're not going to make it through it, guys. What's that? Yeah. So we're going to we're going to stop right there. We we covered a ton a ton of inform, information, and I I strongly recommend that you guys go back and read through these scriptures, re-listen to this message, because the Bible truly is the answer. To the, to the ills of our society. The Bible is the answer to the ills of, of the family, of, of, of governance, of business, of the way that we relate to, to one another. This utopia, this, this kingdom, this Zion of heaven on earth, it only comes through King Jesus. And it only comes through humbling ourselves and being obedient to His design for us. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.karisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved, highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.